good afternoon and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 63 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Hannah Flint. I'm a mom woman. And I'm Clarice Lockery. This week, three college friends find their night turned upside down in emergency, and Amon sat down with star RJ Siler to break down this satirical thriller. Terence Davies delivers another soulful self-portrait through the eyes of a poet in Benediction, and Whatever's Wrong is about to get solved in Disney's reboot of Chippendale Rescue Rangers. And a particularly hot take, we try to figure out why everyone's getting so heated over sex scenes in cinema, and on TV, I think, as well. Just sex scenes in general, really. Sexy sex Just here. sex. Why is everyone so bothered about sex? Because they're not having it, babe. <laughs> well... You got me there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, well, open, let's, I was like, I love about to, about to say on our script, opening chat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What, uh, what's everyone been up to? We're doing it a bit earlier this week as we have things happening. We are, yeah. Uh, to take you behind the curtain a little bit, the, dear listeners, it is 8.09 a.m. on a Thursday. I literally rolled out of my bed 15 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> this is the this is the life we lead. This is the dedication we have to delivering you the best content ever. So, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and you can tell by that pregnant pause that we're all very awake. <laughs> I was waiting for the listener at home to say thank you. You've got to go. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's like when when I used to do stand up, you know, you got to leave a little pause uh, after the joke for the people to laugh, otherwise they miss the next joke. See, you thought you were coming here for film reviews, but actually you're getting some stand up tips. This is this is joker level stand up is what it is. so far. Um what have I been doing? I've been very scared by the lightning. That's all that's happened this week. <laughs> it's a very big thunderstorm. Maybe it happened wherever you were in the world, but there was lightning like every three seconds and I thought Thor was coming, but he didn't come. <laughs> is it Thor or is it Jane? <gasps> it's oh, Thor. Natalie Portman, please come knock on my door. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Marvel... Uh, thoughts on She-Hulk trailer? Oh, Frogman. Who's Frogman? Who's Frogman? I <laughs> would like to know more about him. <laughs> he seems like he's going to be my new favourite little guy. Uh, mm. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, A lot of people have been very upset about the CGI. And on the one hand, I get it, because the CGI is not great in this trailer. But do we really think that over the next three months before She-Hulk comes out, Marvel won't figure that out? Yeah. No, Marvel's going to figure that out. So I've noticed she's there. I love the fact that this is just the next chapter in the Wong cinematic universe. Um, <laughs> they should really just rename it at this point. It's fantastic. Um, Benedict Wong well, as I've said again. before, Infinity Saga was Nick Fury. Whatever this is going to yeah. end up being called is Wong's. It's Wong's <laughs> playground. He's like the glue <laughs> that keeps everything together. Um, yeah. It's interesting because I feel like it's Tatiana Maslany. Uh, I I didn't really I wasn't really keen on her casting, 
Because I think mm. Jenna, what I think people miss is that Jennifer Walt is like is a very tall person anyway. So like to class mm. someone who is tiny and then try and make up for it. And also I think there's a difficulty when you're doing animation when you're doing like women CGI. Uh mm. because they're trying to make her like pretty. <laughs> as well mm. like they're trying to make her I mean, no she is what I'm saying is like okay okay <laughs> right if you've uh, it reminds me <laughs> of taking you back but when I went one year I dressed up as a smurf smurfette pictures or it didn't happen no there aren't any pictures but it did happen no yeah I I, I went through my Facebook and like untagged myself <laughs> like my Facebook is like a bare barren like I literally just use it to so, so that distant family members might be able to contact me uh, I never got it but I remember going out for like one of the Wednesday night things and we all decided to dress up as Smurfs and I went as a Smurfette and in trying to put makeup over blue paint it just looks weird so I feel like when I was looking at the CGI She-Hulk I was like oh is it because they're trying to put like makeup over someone that's green and it looks quite awkward whereas with the Hulk it you don't have to worry about that because men don't have to be attractive do you know what I mean does that make sense yeah. It also reminds me, you know, it's that sort of video game thing where it's like if you have the the male playable character, yeah, they're like super bulked up, but the lady, it's like you gotta have the curve, you have the little curves and skinny, and like I, I yeah. would love to have seen a She Hulk that looked like female bodybuilders do, like yeah. that would be really cool. But yeah. I guess we can't have everything. To be fair, some of those female <laughs> bodybuilders do have. Asses, but I think it's interesting that that's a part of the trailer. It's like, oh my god, look at my ass, because she's got a white girl ass. <laughs> so it's like, oh, now I'm the Hulk. I've actually got a big booty. Um, mm. Yeah, I think also when you look at her evol- evolution, because I'm reading an Avengers series now, and she looks when she's Hulk. I mean, the, the difficulty is in this. She's kind of like she's got too much gamma in her at the moment, so she's getting mm-hmm. bigger, but. There is a sense where it's not trying to sexualize her. So this whole thing where she's suddenly going to get dates as the Hulk, I don't know if I'm... I feel like, oh, God, are you really rom-coming <laughs> She-Hulk? Yeah. Yeah, that that was, like, the weakest part of the trailer for me, easily. Um, but, yeah, I'm still uh, excited for it. I think there's a, probably a good chance that Matt Murdock is going to show up in the show as well, which makes me even more excited because they call it She-Hulk, colon, attorney at law. Um, and we all know that Matt Murdock is a very yeah. good lawyer. So, uh. Yeah, and also I think there's obviously going to be a connection. I feel like a connection to Loki as well, considering she ends up representing something towards a time variant authority in the comic books as well. So, Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah so there could be something there. I have one final question before we move on to today's films. I'm surprised that Clarice hasn't brought it up already yet, but Clarice, have you calm down yet from the Vanity Fair Star Wars <gasps> oh my god <laughs> <laughs> that's I... a no listeners that's a no she, uh... she has not calmed down she's still on cloud nine actually what I'm more, more intrigued about Clarice have you played Lego Star Wars no not yet Okay, because I was like, hold on a second. I'm si- I've like made a rule that I've got this project. I'm like, once it's done, I'm buying it. <laughs> like, I'm refusing to let myself have it. And I was like, I had this real. But I saw you tweet about your story the other day. Yeah, so I, watched, I had like, this real pang of like jealousy of like 
this bitch is what they my game my Lego no, game no, <laughs> no I've, I've watched like a bunch of playthroughs um but i have not physically put my hands yeah. on it yet um yeah. but everything i've seen just looks amazing i really want to play it <laughs> yeah um before we crack on and get into your interview i want to mention a film that i've watched called the innocence which uh, it played in uncertain regard uh at Cannes last year um and it was um written by uh written and directed by uh um joachim Trier's uh writing partner who actually did the worst person in the world uh oh, nice. Um, and it's, uh, I thought I'd mention it because, um, we, we had a mix up with what movies we're watching and I've, mm-hmm. I'm the only one who watched this one. Um, but, and I watched it last night and this morning, I'm very disturbed by it. Um, oh, wow. it's, 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 um, actually a very good, well-made horror movie and really scary. Um, it captures like, you know how, I suppose it's about young kids and they've young children who about like, you know, ages nine and 10. And they live on a kind of council estate, well, in Norway, whatever the equivalent, like a apartment block kind of estate situation. And um, so they develop powers, but one of the, the kind of, it's kind of telekinesis and telepathy. Um, and then one of the kids, a bullied kid, starts, you know, acting out in ways that are quite harmful. Mm. Um, it's like the way it's shot, it's just like, I, I had to help close my, I had to like, put my eye hand over my eyes at some point because you know when you're watching a horror and you're waiting the anticipation and this guy is like i'm gonna wait you wait (laughs) i'm gonna wait you wait and you're gonna be like you don't even know what it's gonna hear i'm gonna build that bit oh god every time it's just very very naturalistic but that's what's quite shocking about it and also it's children my so i do recommend it but my one thing that really pissed me off about it and i've looked and i don't think anyone's mentioned it but you know it's 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 a film where uh the leads it's two sisters one sister's autistic one isn't and they're a white family blonde red strawberry blonde hair white family and then you've mm-hmm. got a lovely a lovely girl um called Aisha who's in a nice home and she's biracial i think her mom maybe like african or somali east african um uh, and actually she's got um uh uh is it vintiligo what is it when you've got Winnie Harlow's discuss what is it? Is it Vintiligo? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think that was wonderful. But my, my I was so upset that like this kid, Sam Ashraf, who plays the the kid, the bad kid, it's that he's a dark skinned brown boy and his mum's played by an Iranian woman. And it's just like really has really bad racial optics, personally, mm-hmm. I feel like this. I think it's like you know, it's an interesting character and it's not an unsympathetic character, but it just, in a film where like, you've got these very white kind of the good guys and the bad guys, and then a really terrible like mother, uh, it kind of really reinforces that. And it really was quite disappointing to me that no one's kind of referencing that kind of putting that out there. Because if you think about like how easily it is to say boys are prone to violence when you make that boy brown and you make him like, because I can't say what his hair, he, he could be sent, I think he might be Central Asian, Middle Eastern or South Asian. I can't, I didn't, I tried to look, but again, it's just that, just the optics, man. I was like, oh, it's really upsetting. Do we ever meet the dad? Uh, no, exactly. So, you know, and it really plays into the kind of like bad mum, single mother, kind of brutal mother, and then like poor kid, but then also acting out in a violent way. Just felt, felt like a bit, oh, 
Yeah. Anyway, but like, very good film, bad racial optics, the innocence, not so innocent. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, um, but so we've got something that is all about racial optics, uh, a film which coming up, Emergency, and uh, Amon. Uh, we all got an interview, but before we do that, here's a trailer for Emergency. Our legendary tour. We're going to seven parties tonight, bro. You should take it easy. Don't get Kunle into any trouble. That boy's black excellence. Oh, come on, come on. If we only gonna have five minutes when we get back to pregame, change, and leave. Sean, what? Where's Carlos? There's an unconscious white girl in our living room. What? Uh, so yeah, I spoke to RJ Siler, star of Emergency, uh, a couple of weeks ago over Zoom, uh, and it was a really, really fun chat. RJ, we should mention, was also in the Harder Day Fall uh, last year, one of my favorite movies. We talked about it a lot. I loved him um, in Me and Elle and, um, and the Dying Girl. Yes, the titular Earl. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I should have asked a question about that. But hey-ho, uh, we had a really, really good time. Uh, we, in addition to the film, we were talking about his love of tequila at various points in this uh, interview. And we were also talking about one of my questions uh, to him because of the film was about how to look cool while vaping. Because uh, I don't vape, but he does a lot of vaping in this film. And it looks really, really cool. So yeah, we had a good... Uh, Good old natter about that. So, yeah, this is me and RJ Siler. Enjoy. Welcome to the Fate of Black podcast. RJ, how you doing? I'm really good. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. All the better for speaking with you about this film. I really enjoyed it. So, first and foremost, congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you dig it. I know you had worked with director Kerry Williams previously. Uh, when did you first see the short movie? And was there any element of the story that really stuck out to you? from just watching that. I got the short one. Carrie, Carrie told me about the short and the script at the same time. So he, he gave me the script first and I read it um, a little bit and just to get a, a kind of taste of what they were looking for script wise, right? And then I went and looked at the short and watching the short, I wanted more of it. You know how throughout, um, when you know that it's a short, you kind of know, all right, I got a good 10 to 15 minutes to fall in love with the character, get disappointed by the character, and then <laughs> settle with being all right, so, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but in this, in, when I was watching this short, I was like, I don't want to see kind of like the end of this interaction between Sean and Kunle. Just like their relationship of how they are with each other. Um, you can tell that they kind of feel the puzzle blocks on each other. So the missing spaces in Sean, you can see him in Kunle. And then the missing spaces in Kunle, you can see in Sean. You, I, I kind of really wanted to see how that uh, developed even more just watching the short. And so um, when he, when I finished reading the script, I was like, oh, hell yeah. Because I could see myself stepping into the shoes of either Sean or Kunle. Um, and so that was, that was fun to di- not feel like I didn't belong in any space of the script, if that makes sense. Even from the bystanders, you know what I'm saying? Like, Oh, okay, that makes sense. It, and especially because Carrie, Carrie is really a, a realistic director that makes um, a spectacle out of reality rather than to look for just a spectacle. You know what I'm saying? And um, yeah, that's what brought me to it. And then 
we made this baby and now we're about to release this baby to the world, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. There's a scene early on in this movie where a white woman says the N-word repeatedly. And mm -hmm. I had a visceral reaction to it, as we both would, I think, if it had been said to us in real life. What is it like filming a scene like that? And what is the atmosphere like before and after? So for... So for me, right, I'm, I'm like, and I didn't always used to be this way, right? Because so, I used to always just attach the word and be like, oh, nah, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? But in, in the moment, it was perfect because even the way she, she was saying it, like in, while we were filming, she would say it different ways to either sound very odd or quirky, mm -hmm. as you know, the character calls for. Mm -hmm. But it, you could see that it made other people comfortable, like some of the extras or whatever. And also me and Donald, you know what I'm saying? was like, whew, you know, yeah. like, but it made sense. It just made it more fun to then play in the scene. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and react like I didn't really have feelings to where I'm like it's written in the script you're not doing the most and if you didn't do the most I would be a little disappointed because this lady on the script does the most mm -hmm. so you know what I'm saying put put that work in don't be scared ain't nobody gonna hurt you baby you okay <laughs> <laughs> you know? absolutely I get that I think a scene like that really speaks to the balance of laughs and also tension and nerves that this film has I think you guys really nailed that was that always inherent in the screenplay, as you say, or were there various moments where it was like, let's inject some more humor in here? No, I, it, it mostly, all of that is really just in the writing. It, it was all there. KD really did her thing. Um, she, she really balanced out not just the, um, the script itself, but just the human experience. You know, um, when we're in very traumatic situations or ones that's scary, there's a laugh somewhere that comes, even if that's after, you know what I'm saying? It's like, oh shit, that was scary. Excuse my French, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, like we, we freak out sometimes and sometimes to come to a place of calm, we'll just try to find where the happy could be, you know what I'm saying? Or it's, it's, it's general knowledge of how we react to stuff that, that, that isn't too fun to deal with. And so when it came to like how the movie is, it's like, we don't want to kind of lose people in the sense of, okay, this is all bad. This is all bad. Like we have the movies that scare you already about the police. We got the movies that scare you about what it is to be a young black man. We have those, you know, like, and to, to be in a, a movie where we, it's like, we don't push the extremes to where we lose people because this is where they, they, their cap is, you know, it's really refreshing because the subject matter is very deep and it's very serious, but it's not punched in your face, the whole script, you know what I'm saying? It's more like laid on your face, like a pillow, you yeah. know, you don't, <laughs> yeah, it's like, Hey, this is the actual deal. And this is the actual problem but we're not just gonna give it to you like a shot of bourbon or whatever. We'll give you some Coca-Cola too, or maybe some sweet tea if that's what you're into, you know? Um, I, I think just that balance is good because we can, it's definitely easy to lose an audience. Like, you know, 
it, they don't want to be so sulky right now. We, we in a whole war with another country we ain't got nothing to do with. We don't really have time for the extra drama. You know what I'm saying? We want to laugh a little bit now. So I think that was, that was another refreshing thing about the script was that it didn't just try to bleed for the toxicity. You feel me? It didn't just reach for the trauma so much. It's like, we know it's there. We know it's there. Okay, we yeah. got it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I'm getting a good sense of what you like here. So far, I've got really comfortable pillows and shots of bourbon. Am I, am I right in thinking that? Well, I'm more of a tequila. <laughs> I'm more of a tequila guy now, but I used uh, to be a bourbonist when I was in Abu Dhabi. I ain't going to lie. Bourbon, <laughs> kinda, you know. Good to know. If ever we meet up, shots of tequila on me. You have my All right, word. <laughs> um, I really love the dynamic and the camaraderie between uh, Sean, Carlos, and Kunle in this one. It really comes through the screen. Was there anything you guys did off camera beforehand to really build that chemistry? It was, I think it was, well, it wasn't nothing that we did with each other, really. We just all hung out. It kind of was just instantaneous. Like, even before we got to... Um, be in Atlanta together. I know Donald got to Atlanta first. Me and Donald read first. And uh, once I read with Donald, I was like, Carrie, yes. <laughs> yes, Carrie. Like when I when I say it was almost like meeting Kunle in person, you know, what wasn't even needed because I had just met him. Like he flushed out Kunle so perfectly. And when we got to Atlanta, it was just it was instantaneous. It was just like, what's up, bro? We didn't even give handshakes. We gave each other hugs. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's good, bro? How you doing? And then, um, you know, we started to just kind of be around each other and be there for each other. We had this, uh, you know, uh, understanding like, all right, whatever you need from me, I got you. You feel me? Like, I, whatever y'all need as creators, whatever y'all need as people, like, I got you, bro. And same from them. You know what I'm saying? To be able to know I can lean on them for whatever I needed and then same from them to me. Um, and then we just would go out to like lunch and we went to brunch. We took Maddie to brunch, which was really funny and cute because Atlanta brunch is different from any else's. Anybody else's is more like, you know, buns and biscuits, which is funny because it's like, all right, word. Y'all don't just eat breakfast here. Like it's a whole party, you feel me? And we were expecting just breakfast and omelets, but you know, tequila was involved too. Which was crazy, you know? There's and, that tequila uh, again. Yo, there it is, bro. Uh, I, cooked, I cooked dinner for them one time while we was out there just as a, you know, um, like welcome to Atlanta thing as if I'm from Atlanta. I'm not, but, you know, I got family in Georgia and stuff. So it was, it was the same thing. Um and yeah, we just kind of, we, we built friendship, if that makes sense, to where it's like coming to work, it was just like three friends being filmed, living everyday life now, you know, mm. to where it then became a part of real rather than just, you know, us acting or whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. It comes through. Um, this idea of Black excellence is really part of Kunle's character, but it's something as a Black man myself that I also think about. Do you ever think about that? And do you feel the pressure to be great all the time? Is the, the idea of black excellence something that you think about? I was born black excellence, you feel me? It's nothing that I do that makes me that, you feel me? Like, it's the, I'm, I'm black, that's excellent, you feel me? Not like, oh, black excellence is me walking in this type of fashion or me having this job or me having this. Like, not to take away from what it is, right? 
Mm-hmm. But the accolades that come along with the things that you do isn't just what makes you excellent as being a black person. You feel me? Like I'm black. That's excellent enough. Now let me show you these other things that I can do because I am. You feel me? Rather than the things that I do is what makes me the excellence. You feel me? Like I get that that's the world that we live in, but as a person that, you know, I find the value in the person past what they can do for me. You feel me? Like, because most people really can't do shit for you. Oh, excuse my friends. Can't do nothing for you if, you know, it's nothing that you can do in return. So it's more of a thing of making the person excellence. You feel me? Rather than the things that that person can do and or provide for, you know, for you. You feel me? Like, Black excellence ain't just <laughs> the nice cars and stuff that mimics other races that have money or whatever. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's it's slow because you can be a bum in a Rolls Royce (laughs) or you can be a you know like you can have a Birkin bag with $30 like not that it's a problem or nothing like that but I'm pretty sure if you've seen that it's $30 and that you're not going to count it as excellence other than just the tangible things that you have like possessions don't make me great or excellent like I drip that, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm black. That's (laughs) that's who? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I should probably say that there's no need to excuse your French on the Faith of Black podcast. You can can say what you want. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the things that I know Kerry helped you out with was forming playlists for your character. So what was on the playlist for Sean? Sean had a lot of, so I had some Spillage Village on there. I had some Naraya Francis on there. I had some Ishdar on there. Um, and what did that tell you about I, the character? How did that get you in the right mindset? Well, well, because it's like they all grasp a different thing of Sean. So Sean is so multifaceted that the, the playlist had to be. So I had to have things that were straight up gangster shit, or I had to have like you know, love music over here. I had to have music about depression here. I had like two, I think, Linkin Park tracks, but who doesn't? You know <laughs> what I'm saying? I feel like, <laughs> you know, um, and so it's, it's Carrie, Carrie himself, I feel like he was a godly music producer in his past life. And I'm going to study it up because his, his sense of music is ridiculous. Like he can pull things out the air like that, you know? Um, and also when it comes to how good the music soundtrack is for the movie, that kind of shows how good Carrie is at telling a story just with audio, you feel me? Like, he, he's really good at it. The same way he can put a film together, he can put a soundtrack together. And so for each character, you know, um, it was like, I could just pop my tune, just tune myself kind of into my Sean playlist, and then it'll put me right where I needed to be. And so sometimes, it was stuff that I was missing off of there. Like, Carrie would ask us to build it, and it's like, okay, we'll try this on there, try this on there, try this on there. And it'll make so much sense because it will come from out of nowhere, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it just, yeah, it mailed it great for the, the multifaceted nature of, of all, all the characters, really. But for Sean, it's who I can speak for, for, for sure, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so, one of the things that, you know, I've consistently seen both you and Kerry and others say about this film is that it's about starting conversations and I feel like there's already I I can't wait to have a conversation with my other co-host about this film having now seen it 
what is the most interesting conversation that you've either ho- overheard or had with somebody after they've watched this film, other than this one, of course? Um, I think I think the most interesting conversation is the one of like never knowing or never fathoming that certain things could be true. You know what I'm saying? Um, and also taking on that same pair of shoes to be like, damn, there is a space of just total space-mindedness to where people actually have no idea that this is reality for certain people. You feel me? And so um, to, to kind of be involved in those conversations, but not in a place of anger towards someone who does lack knowledge of, rather than to just be be willing to be the teacher past my own understanding. Because of course we would want people to get it because it's a part of our everyday walk, you feel me? Mm-hmm. But with people who, it, we, we, they couldn't fathom having a gun drawn on them or they couldn't fathom having the police put them on, you know, on, the, on a hot car or anything like that. They, that, 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 that isn't a part of what they see, rea- that's a nightmare to them. But it's mm-hmm. like, oh no, nah, that's just a Thursday in April, okay? That's, <laughs> you know, like, um, and so to be able to kind of start those conversations, you start to also find a little bit of peace in between people. You feel me? I, I feel like when we allow for media to kind of work and give us our information, it's all skewed in a way or it's waved in this way. So when you start the conversation with people, right, it's like then you find understanding, but you got to be willing to listen past your own understanding. You feel me? Um, just that, that earpiece and also seeing where I was a little bit, you know, in a stuck place of um, not wanting to hear certain things, you know, because of my own experiences and kind of being able to heal from certain things and being like, all right, word, word, RJ, cool. So, so you know, not to say that my, my shoulders are light or anything like that, but um, just the, 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 I'm not as held back or hurt by these situations that have happened or confrontations in the past, right? I'm more of in a place of knowledge of both ends of the, you know, of the puzzle. You feel me? Like, all right, word. Okay, cool. So now I see that the problem isn't the officer. It's just the way that the officer was trained by this type of system and, you know, these ways. So it's like, then you kind of get to talk a little different or your, your, your fears are this and that. And plus it just puts you in a space to where you want to know more about your community and your laws and whatever your rights are and such like that. So then when you are brought to these type of situations, rather than to be in a place of panic because you don't know what to do, it's more in a comfort place of, nah, I know I'm good. I actually understand where y'all coming from. Okay, cool. So we can talk like individuals, right? Right. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. Okay. I get that. Uh, a couple more questions before I let you go. And the next question is the most important question that I have for you today. So prepare yourself. Here it is. Okay. What is the secret to looking cool while vaping? Because I don't vape, but you made it look so cool. I I, I want to do it. So, so what is the secret? Yo, and so look, in real life, I don't vape. Sean vapes. <laughs> so I was like, uh, Think about, think about like hookah, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, I have a friend, Mike, right, who owns this uh, hookah lounge that's in, in Woodland Hills. And, um, and then I also have a friend, Mitch, who owns his own hookah spot, right, over in North Hollywood. So when 
when me and Mitch used to go out and stuff like that, he would show me like how to blow O's and stuff, right? But the little vape thing, that's I don't see how people can do that just constantly because it's so that shit heavy, like it hit the throat different, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, this ain't hookah player, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, this ain't hookah, this mug hit like a truck, okay? And um, so it's like, on most of those takes, it would I would have to prepare my lungs for it. So I had to definitely get used to smoking a vape. And so I would, uh, when we come in in the morning, I'm like, yo, let me get my vape. They put the one with like no nicotine. So it's practically just water vape or whatever. Right. So I can actually, take it without you know gaining a, you know a habit or whatever <laughs> yeah. and so um it's like my first few talks of the day you would think that I was like a 62 year old like <laughs> heavy heavy smoker bro but it was like I'm good I'm okay I swear I'm okay it's a few times I would be on FaceTime with my girl and I'm coughing she like you all right I'm like yeah I'm good it's I'm practicing for the vape, baby. You all right? You could? You know, <laughs> that job would mess me up. But it, I think the, the thing is the thicker the cloud, right? And all vapes blow kind of thick clouds, right? Mm -hmm. You just kind of blow it in a steady direction. You know what I'm saying? Don't do too much. Like the people that be, you know, putting all that extraness, <laughs> they just weird. It's like people that speed in alternates, you know, like just slow down, okay? But you know, it's just like if you let it drip, you know what I'm saying? Kind of blow it normal, you straight. Then you look like Rick Ross instead of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, I, at first I started like, um, if I imagine like, who, who might look? I don't know. I just look weird doing it at first because, I, you know, I'm trying to look cool vaping. And I would just look weird, you know, with the whole like, yeah, lip blowing the old. I look like Ed, Ed, and Eddie on most of them. It's really weird. <laughs> well, the takes they used, you look very, very cool. So, yeah, thank <laughs> maybe, maybe thank Kerry for picking the right one because he never. Yeah, that's all Kerry. You know. that's, <laughs> no, that's all Kerry and Chris. I had, I, uh, or Mike, I had nothing to do with it. All of them too. <laughs> Mikey, Mikey and Chris are a crazy like pair when it comes to creating and, and they speak each other's language. So they made it work. Absolutely did. Uh, final thing I want to ask you about is The Harder They Fall because I'm a huge, huge fan of that film. And I know that your favorite film is Midnight Cowboy. How cool was it for you to star in a black cowboy film? Yo, that shit was too lit. It's almost like full circle, you know? Because right. like, uh, I, I was, I was, um, when I first got to um, to shooting the harder they fall, right? I was already like two weeks late into the process, so I had less time to kind of learn everything and get ready and da 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 woo woo. So my hands definitely dealt with a lot of uh, scratches, bruises, punctures, and all these things. Um, but it was so worth it, like. Um, I'm a country boy, so when it comes to, like, horses being outside or, you know, animals and such, like, I'm down for it, you know. I'm, I'm all into that. I tried to – I chopped wood on Freedom's Path just because I could type shit, you know, like. And so um, being able to kind of rock on that was already fun. But then the people that were involved, like Jonathan Majors, Regina King, like, I, I, Delroy, I'm, I'm already tripping out, you know, like, 
Danielle in them. I'm, I I had just watched the film with Danielle in it like the week before I got there, but everybody else is on my Netflix queue, even like Dion Cole, because comedian-wise, one of my favorites other than Ralphie Mae, you know? And so um, to, to kind of be with all these legends and, and like know our work, we about to all, you know, I get to box in the scenes with them, you know what I'm saying? And, and kind of take on what they're doing. And I've been really learning from Jonathan since I shot with him on White Boy Rick. And mm. even just the way that he is in, in person, right? He's such a smooth fella, you know what I'm saying? But when it comes to the craft, he really embellishes, you know, uh, in the character, you feel me? Like he gets to fully come there. And, and, and I, I really dig that to a point of like, just student work. Like I got to learn the whole time I was there. You feel me? I didn't even feel like I was going to work or nothing because it felt if it was fun the whole time. You know, I'm like, dang, we done? All right, all right, work. But we coming back tomorrow, right? All right, cool. And then COVID happened. (laughs) And then we had to pause. But we came back with it and 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 it was a lot of fun. I still want to buy a horse to this day, but I just need to get, you know, a few more of my funds, but I feel like a horse is cheaper than gas now. So like, <laughs> it's getting that way for sure. <laughs> yo, what? I would rather do carrots, oats, and things of that nature rather than premium right now. <laughs> you may yet get your chance, but RJ, until we meet again for tequila, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure and congratulations on the phone. Harold, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. SOS, please someone help me. It's not healthy for me to feel this way. <laughs> Rihanna, bring an arm down. Forget your baby. Forget your baby. The baby can do the album. Drop the uh, album. And then the baby is as well eventually. <laughs> but no, no, don't drop don't the baby. Don't drop the baby, Just Rihanna. Drop the baby. I the to like, Black podcast does meant, not sanction the dropping of babies. I meant drop it like give birth to the baby. I don't know. Drop it like it's hot. <laughs> drop it like it's got to come out of your body because it's a baby. Uh, this is emergency. Um, and so the synopsis of this film is... Kunle and his best friend Sean are both seniors in college about to embark on an epic night of spring break parties. Sean has the whole night planned out, including every party they will hit on their legendary tour. Kunle is down, yet mostly concerned with finishing up his mold experiment in his lab, as his acceptance to Princeton is hinging on the results. They return to their apartment to pre-game, yet find that their roommate Carlos left the door open. As they enter with trepidation, Sean and Kunle discover a drunk, semi-conscious white female they don't know on the floor and an oblivious Carlos who didn't hear her come in over the video game blaring in his ears. Uh, Kunle wants to call the cops, but Sean vehemently opposes the idea, concerned how it will look when the cops show up. Directed by Kerry Williams and serving as a feature-length adaptation of Williams and K.D. Davia's 2018 short film of the same name, it stars R.J. Seiler, Donald Elise Watkins, Sebastian Chacon, Maddie Nichols, and Sabrina Carpenter, who is from Disney Channel, I believe. Is that where Sabrina oh. Carpenter? Yeah, is? I know her from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never I mind. I can't remember. Not She's important. in something like that, like The Descendants or something. So okay. I think I'm I'm interested 
first off mostly what the the tone of this film because i've uh, heard it described a lot as a satirical thriller so sort of like borderline on the edge of comedy but but maybe not amon what's yeah what what how should we approach this film i think you nailed it um they there is a through line of comedy all the way through but especially as the film progresses and when it gets to the really heavy stuff in the final act, the racial tension and the drama of that, which has been, again, always on the surface from the first couple of scenes onwards, as that becomes more pronounced, it turns that that's the sort of tone which wins out over the comedy. I think rightfully so, given how the events of the film play out. Yeah, and Hannah, I know, um, I know we're about to get into. <laughs> we have very differing opinions on the podcast today, <laughs> so I guess I want to start. What, what was your biggest issue with this film? Because I know, obviously, like it's not an easy topic to handle, and I think we've seen so many films go uh, awry with it. Let's say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really did not get on with this film at all. For me, it felt like a really um, layered on school PSA designed for white people to learn about racism because I, I can't imagine who this, who the, uh, anyone who has ever been a victim of racism really needing to watch it. Because I think from the beginning, there, there's an opening scene where they're in a lecture hall and it's, in, it's set in like a, you know, a kind of a liberal, maybe a liberal arts college on the East Coast. And there's a big thing about them being like, and they're, they're only two like black kids in this, this class. Um, and it's like got this English professor who's like, first thing they're going to do is discuss the N word and she says it. And it just feels like, oh, <laughs> what is this? What is the purpose of this scene? This is to set up, I feel like it was a very like, um, on the nose way of saying, oh yeah, let's talk about, con- you know, racial co- co- um, microaggressions and, you know, awkwardness. And it felt like, oh God, this is just, <laughs> it felt like I was waiting for like, you know, Cap- Captain America to come on the stream. So, so <laughs> we're here to talk about racism. That's what it felt like straight away. Um, and then as it went on, I think it's trying to, I suppose the, I think my biggest issue of it, apart from myriad other things, but it's trying to toe this line between, um, you know, racial issues and race relations and the insecurity of that. But then also violence against women on, on campus, because fundamentally the point is that they find this unconscious girl in their flat and it's what do they do with it? What do with her? And I feel like it really, in trying to like, it focused so much on the racial narrative that it really like didn't even bother attempting to try and come from a place of um, understanding or empathy um, about what it is to be a young girl who's drunk, <laughs> and and throughout it just like you have to really suspend your disbelief, and I really mean suspend it because every single decision they make it's like a comedy of errors, right? But like every single error they make, it just seemed like just even more uncomfortable and kind of there's a certain point where yeah I get it the racial optics here I get why I get the understanding but then you start at some point you're just like this is just too much now and yeah it for me it really did not navigate that line very well at all 
So, Amon, I mean, <laughs> this is, okay, that's giving me a, one very distinct picture of what this movie is. Do, do you want to give me another? Is there room for subtlety here? Uh, is there nuance to it? Because what Hannah's describing sounds, I can see it sounds very simplistic, kind of unnuanced approach to it. I think there's nuance there. Um, I take uh, Hannah's point. I do think they could have done more from the perspective of, I guess from the perspective of the drunk white girl. Is that sort of what kind of what you're saying in terms of they could have done more with that? I think like there lacked a kind of concern about, it was more so concerned and like, oh my God, these brown boys are going to get blamed for this white girl. But there wasn't like considering, you know, there's also a sense of this This is what happens on college campuses. And they're playing on the fact that women on college campuses are constantly, male violence is prevalent <laughs> on US college campuses. And it doesn't really tap, 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 touch and get like gauge into that. And I do think it was too harsh. There's a sister, Sabrina Carpenter, who's like trying to find her sister. And I felt like she was positioned as this like villain, pretty, even to the end, as if she's, she's kind of like the bad guy. And I feel like that's really unfair because if your younger sister is being kidnapped in your head, it would take you a long time to kind of get past the point where you're like trusting these three men who've got them. Do you know what I mean? Like it felt like it was really trying to make it all. And don't you run it fine if they, that's what the story they want to tell. But like, I feel like if you're going to use something that is so, so such a thorny subject and actually real subject that goes on as as serious, to be honest, as, you know, police brutality, m- women getting assaulted when they're unconscious and drunk, it's still an issue. And I feel like that that positioning, especially at the final, like, don't want to obviously give it away, but there's a final scene and I felt it was really, like, really um, crass and really unfair um, of that treatment of that sister. Okay. I don't want to give it away, but she's not initially assaulted, but so, what when, I'm, when she, it's the it's the yeah. it's the theme it's the theme of it, isn't it? It's the yeah. theme of like what it means to be when you're the the safety issue surrounded by a drunk girl. But also they don't know they don't know she's she could have come in there because she's escaping a rape. Someone is trying to attack her and she's found her on the floor. Do you know what I mean? Like there's all this th- there's all these kind of ambiguities around it that it really doesn't try and engage with or interrogate. And what I'm saying is like she, she I know she the sister has no idea we're supposed to be on her but it's really it seems to be far less sympathetic to how she might be feeling like it's all about the optics about how they're seen well from that sister's point of view she's like hold on a second i'm trying to find my 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 sister's in this car with three men that i've seen what am i obviously you're going to think think the worst and it might take you a while to get out of it especially when you find that she's unconscious and not like breathe do you know what i mean like and i felt like it didn't give enough the balance there like it didn't give enough balance to like that situation of what it means to be potentially a victim in that sense. And also like they kidnap her, like fundamentally they don't, they could do everything they can do to not actually do the more obvious thing to do. You know, they take the long way route and actually they put them in more danger by not doing that, doing the original thing. And that's fine. I get it. That's the complicated thing about it. But like they weren't, they were, it was very much about them trying to save themselves more than save this girl. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I agree with some of what you're saying there. In terms of, to answer Clarice's question from about 50,000 years ago, um, uh, <laughs> is there nuance? I do think there's nuance 
from the perspective of the black characters, which is where the focus of the story lies. Because on the one hand, you got Kunle, who uh, is the son of immigrants, so he might not have the experience that Ashawn, who is very American, um, would have with racial um, violence and police brutality and all the rest of it. And the divide between those two characters is set up right from that opening scene, which I had a very visceral reaction to. Like, it's very interesting. Obviously, the, again, there's that undercurrent of comedy, but still, no matter if it's in a film or if it's in real life, when you hear a white woman say the N-word in its entirety four times in about 60 seconds... <laughs> but I think that's the... cheap. I think that's cheap. Of course you have that reaction, but I think that's a cheap yeah. way of, like just get a white woman to say the N-word and that's going to make you feel uncomfortable. And I feel like that's so obvious. That's like an obvious thing to me in this day and age. <laughs> it might be obvious, but it is effective. And I get why they went that route to establish that, you know, to establish the tone of the film and establish the central sort of story of the film in many respects. I think it worked. So, I mean, we, we RJ Sather, obviously we've just had an interview from him. I think he's a, awesome actor i mean could you talk a little bit about the performances in in general i'm not super familiar with the rest of the cast yeah nor was i before uh watching this but the camaraderie between rj silas sean and donald elise watkins's kunle i think is where much of the best stuff in this film lies uh there is a third uh character there who forms part of that uh trio carlos um, who I don't think is done as well because, again, the focus is very much on those black kids. And I think Carlos is, um, he's not of that diaspora and they don't really uh, do much in regards to how he might be feeling uh, about everything that's, which is happening. They, they could have done more to sort of sketch that better. Um, but yeah, I really, really liked that dynamic. Um, you could tell that these guys were, you know, they've been friends for a while, but one of the one of them is very sort of overachieving uh black excellence dude. That's a phrase that gets thrown out here. I asked RJ about it in the interview. Um and then Sean, who is not untalented, but he sort of likes to he's a bit more carefree, he likes parties and all the rest of it. So that dynamic is really interesting. In in a sense, this film is sort of flipping this super bad one crazy night um sort of premise on its head a little bit because it's got that along with this um sort of call for understanding uh, when it comes to race and that sort of thing so it's trying to merge those two things i think it does a mostly pretty good job of that obviously hannah disagrees um but yeah i i, I think i think the, com- the camaraderie between between the three is uh mostly entertaining i enjoyed it cool mm-hmm. it sounds definitely like interesting i'm excited to watch it and and get and see what my opinion of it is <laughs> i mean i found the performances pretty up and down i think all the characters are stock characters like they're just like oh the overachiever the rudderless best friend i mean there's such it's such a surface level engagement and who these people are the prep like the carlos the, the latino friend he's just like throwing in there it, it's clearly uninterested in that. And even the other characters, there's, they're so, like, it really just scrapes the surface of what could, like, don't get me wrong, I think it potentially could be an interesting premise. But I think the idea you said there, Amon, 
that because mm-hmm. he's the son of African immigrants, that he would be less... He's, that, I think that's what's the issue is, like, the naivety of this kid, this guy who's mm-hmm. like, like, I just feel like that's just... Just, like, in this day and age, it just feels... There's no reason for that. There's no reason why that person would be that naive, especially if they're supposedly best friends, because I'm sure that this has come up a lot. Like, do you know what I mean? Because then if, like, there's a bit in it where... You know, they suddenly discover they suddenly discover something about um, RJ's character. Uh, RJ's character, and you're like, "Have you been at college together for like four years? You're supposed to be best friends, and you don't know this in this detail. Like, you can't. It doesn't. It, it seems like why is it suddenly? It's taken this moment, this one night, for suddenly discovered. Like, oh my god, police brutality is a thing. It, it just like there's there's no backstory there to understand or even their friendship why they're friends like have they been what is school friends it's just yeah again this is what i'm saying it's like it's trying to like have these big ideas and 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 just really not doing enough work to establish these characters as fully formed like human beings beyond stereotypes and yeah that's what's disappointing and i found like direction kind of uninspired as well yeah, I just really did not get on. I mean, there was certain. Really, don't get me it's wrong. not. It's not. It's not coming through, Hannah. It's not clear that you didn't like. I'm joking. Say right. It's interesting though because I am fully aware that I'm in a minority on this opinion because when I look when I was watching, I was like, "Who else feels this?" But I am. I am. I'm, I feel good that both myself, Candice Fredericks, and Valerie Complex are all in the same school of not liking this film. So I feel. It's not just me. It's like, am I the bad guy? No, no, I'm not. Am I the drama? (laughs) It's like Malcolm and Maria again, except for like Amon's not on the side. (laughs) Just, just, just leave me out here in the cold. It's fine. It's fine. No, I, I, I had fun with this one. Um, I do think the heavier moments in the end. Uh, in the final act, uh, very, very impactful and well played, uh, especially by Donald Elise Watkins as Kunle. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, I, mean, I feel like I can kind of guess what the, the final judgments will be, but yeah. I'm I think, on. Yeah, so it's a screen from Hannah. Like, no, I'm joking. <laughs> so, Amon, is it going to be a, a screen, stream, or skip for Emergency? Stream for me. Uh, I do think there's a lot of interesting stuff here. I kind of agree with you a little bit, Hannah, in terms of there's nothing about the direction which is making me really, really think that I should see this in the cinema. But in terms of a stream, a stream of the movie, have a really entertaining time on one front, but also uh, have content which would, at the very least, inspire conversations with those with some people around me, uh, which I think would be very interesting. Um, yeah, on that level, I'd say stream. Hannah. Yeah, skip. I mean, maybe if you're white, watch it. <laughs> if you need to learn about what it's like, to, you know, that's about it. So skip, but I should watch it. <laughs> no, you know what? You're a white woman, and I feel like you don't need to watch it. <laughs> okay, I'm excused. <laughs> maybe white men. <laughs> wow. That's a very specific distinction. No, I mean, look, I, I just didn't enjoy it, and I feel like there's far better films that can deal with issues of race so that's just it's not one for me watch it if you if you like if you don't mm. there's no skin off my nose 
But definitely listen, make sure you listen to Aman's interview with RJ Siler. From two bright young things to the, the bright young things of the 1920s, it's Benediction. Name. Soon, Siegfried. Rank. Second Lieutenant. Disease. I've had some sort of breakdown. Your lot is with the ghosts of soldiers dead. And I am in the field where men must fight. Your duty lies in obeying orders. In the face of such slaughter, one cannot simply order one's conscience. Good morning, Doctor. We have a house magazine. I'm sure it would welcome a contribution. And I'll try to write something light and amusing. There's no need to go that far. Okay, Benediction. I have not seen this film. Uh, Clarice has seen it. Aman, you've seen this, right? Or half of it? I've seen half of it. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to cut off my opinions halfway through. No, yeah. Um, you can give you can give half every time you speak you have to stop mid sentence. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fair. Okay. Uh so a complex man who survived the horrors of fighting in the First World War, Siegfried Sassoon, not to be confused with Vidal Sassoon, uh, a soldier decorated for his bravery on the battlefield, became a vocal critic of the government's continuation of the war when he returned from service. Legendary still today for his poetry inspired by his experiences on the Western Front, he was adored by both members of the aristocracy, uh, as well as stars of London's literary and theatre scene. He embarks on affairs with several high-profile men as he attempted to come to terms with his homosexuality, whilst at the same time broken by the horrors of war. His life's journey became a quest for salvation. Oh, I do love a studio uh, synopsis. Uh, written and directed by Terence Davies it stars Jack Weldon, Peter Capaldi Simon Russell Beale, Jeremy Irvine Irvine? Jeremy Irvine, Callum Lynch and Tom Blythe so oh god can I just say (laughs) I think one of the reasons I I basically last night I had the choice of watching The Innocents and this and I think it's because I kind of am so bored of World War 1 and World War 2 movies like every goddamn year there's about 10 or like double that there's so many so I suppose my question Clarice like given how many we've had um and the framing of this in this guy's life from his time in war uh is this the way is this do you think this was like the best way into it into the story of you know I suppose this because it's a biopic it's a historical biopic right yeah, well, I think it's it is because it is it's not really a World War story okay. or film. It's more about the post-war period, okay, and I fine. think specifically the yeah the the trauma of it because I mean the twenties were a very interesting time in that respect where everyone was so intensely traumatized, but also like didn't want to talk about it or process it so they just like had parties just had the roaring 20s instead because <laughs> it's like we're not gonna talk about it we're just gonna drink and fuck i don't know uh and, and i think that's a i think for a portrait of siegfried Sassoon, that's a really interesting way into his life to not just go in for like you know his how the war inspired his poetry because that's that's kind of a given I think I don't know I studied Siegfried Sassoon at school I feel like most people read a little bit of his poetry at some point if you live in the UK um like what's going what's one of his what's one of his famous I honestly I can't even remember 
Only ones I remember from school, like Caroline Duff and John Agard. (laughs) John Agard, because I'm half cast, and it's like, oh God, that's me. (laughs) Well, the one thing I think he was—he's very famous for that this film doesn't does cover to some degree—is the that he objected to the war. He he served and then he got trench fever, so he was pulled out, and then he refused to go back. Oh, a conscientious objector. Mm-hmm. Yes, sort of, because he wanted to be a conscientious objector and he wanted to be court-martialed so that he could uh, have a platform to express his disgust for the prolonged continuation of the war. But because he was sort of from, like, Aristotle's stock, they said, oh, instead of <laughs> instead of doing that, we're just going to say you have shell shock and we're going to put you in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, so it's, it's oh, like a God. very sad... The, the poor, yeah. poor, poor rich people. <laughs> but this is the thing. But this is the thing, though. It's, it's, it's about survivor's guilt. And I think yeah. that is a really smart way to look at this guy's life because he wanted to be court-martialed. Yeah, he, he yeah. He was prepared to die for how much he for his disgust at what was happening. And that's the thing that then shapes the entire rest of his journey through the film. His life is his his feeling of like, why the fuck am I still alive? Why am I here? Like, mm. what am I doing? And he cannot, he just like, it's a really sophisticated, I think intelligent way to look at PTSD in a broader sense. Like mm. not as, as a specific, like he's having flashbacks and more that he he just cannot settle back into his life because he he just doesn't he doesn't know what life is anymore Mm. so it's very sad it's like it's punishingly sad as a movie but i really loved it (laughs) it reminds you just you when you say all that it reminds me of the hurt locker you know the scene where he's like in the supermarket just looking at or is it like detergent he's like i i I, climatizing back to reality it's really hard um Amon so I mean how did you think that then survive like um the survivor's guilt part of it you know that kind of how it wrapped up how did you feel that kind of engaged with that did you know you just said it was punishing uh Clarice did you find it quite overwhelmingly kind of sad and traumatic as well it was sad it was traumatic um and it felt a little bit long at points. I mean, granted, I haven't finished it. Um, to... <laughs> I suppose Which there's so some more, doesn't it? But no, but um, I think that's. But... I think I think that's fair, Amon, because um, obviously the pacing of it was issued, and you might have got through it if yeah. you felt it was a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely felt the pacing. I do want to follow up and ask Clavisa a question, if I may, because... Go, go, all right, um, <laughs> Because one of the things that we haven't mentioned yet is that this sort of stretches through eras, and Peter Capaldi plays an older version of the character who Jack Loudon uh, plays, uh, of... Of of Siegfried Sassoon. Um, and you were mentioning about Survivor's Guilt, and I sort of got a snippet of it in the portion of it that I watched, but how did they follow through on that in terms of joining the dots between the Secret Sassoon, who Jack Loudon plays, and the Secret Sassoon, who Peter Capaldi plays? Yeah, I. what surprised me is that I think in a more conventional biopic, you'd get about two-thirds of the way through, and then it would switch to the older version, right? right? But it doesn't do that. I think it's much smarter. Terence Davies... I mean, he's a great filmmaker. Uh, it takes a more, I guess, lyrical approach. It kind of dips 
in and out because it's more about uh the emotional connection that even when he was older when he's being played by peter capaldi <laughs> mm-hmm. uh that guilt that dissatisfaction is still there and his section is mostly about uh his conversion to catholicism because he says he wants something permanent and unchanging and he's still dissatisfied because like it's catholicism <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean you want you've already got survivor's guilt do you want catholic guilt as well <laughs> why'd you do that buddy why? Um, and like he's sort of like kind of disgusted by his son he's dissatisfied by his his marriage because he did uh get married to a woman even though he was gay, he, he, he there's this really sad line where he he says he tells the woman that he's about to marry, like, you must redeem my life for me. Oh, because God. he thinks that this woman's gonna fix everything. It's just yeah, it's a sad movie. Oh, you know what? <laughs> of course women have to carry the emotional burden for men once more. <laughs> I would say though, I think like her character is is really well written. It's not this she's not in it that much, but you do get this idea of this woman who she understands like she's like fully cognizant of what's happening. <laughs> oh yeah, know she knows why. she's a beard. I'm I'm on board for this cuz like uh, I yeah. think we so soon, I guess. Did you I mean, yeah, I mean, you guys kind of like <laughs> Hugh Jackman, isn't it? <laughs> They're a very happy couple. Um uh so oh, sorry, so I'm gleaning from that. So it's a non-linear kind of narrative. Can you just tell me a bit more like about the I suppose like some of the, the things that you notice like beyond about the structure of it, um, you know, uh how it's shot as well, because cause I can imagine it's one of those period dramas there's lots of like longing looks. <laughs> yeah. Now they do a really good job of because one of the things that Secret Sassoon was was this poet. And they do a really good job of sort of merging black and white footage of the war with his words on it, um, especially in the early going. So I like that. Um, I also just, I'm sure we're going to get into it, but Jack Loudon's performance in this is really, really good. He's just one of the best British actors working today, uh, really chameleonic in a number of his roles. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm always impressed when he's on screen. Jack Loudon really is like, I only exist in the past. <laughs> <laughs> period really dramas is. or nothing well <laughs> no he, i love him is, though i love him though. yeah yeah no he is uh starring in an apple tv plus show with gary Oldman, slow horses right now which is very present day yeah Most but time, so. he's like everything that i've watched him with on screen it's pretty much period drama it's yeah, like yeah. yeah anyway clarice what did you what do you think of jack and also i think what's interesting is it's always interesting we have uh two actors playing the same character how how did that did, did you feel it's the same <laughs> They try and, in the first time they stretch through the ages, they try and sort of have Jack and then they have Peter Capaldi sort of, you know, merge into a space. <laughs> I, <don't laughs> I don't know if that works. You know what I mean, though, Yeah, right? no, I know yeah, what you mean. Yeah, I'm just explaining it very badly, but you can picture it. Like a Doctor Who regeneration. <laughs> I never watched the show, but... <laughs> <Neither> <laughs> <by>. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought I, Jack Loudon was amazing. Because I think as well, it's a lot of what the character's dealing with is is so unspoken because like dissatisfaction with your life is quite hard to vocalise. But I think he like he really captures it just in in like the physical presence of his performance because he's going to like all these parties and like Ivan Novello's there twin he's doing the piano singing little jaunty songs and you just see Siegfried Sassoon at the corner like <laughs> just <laughs> like 
like just Sad misery, boy. a picture of misery. Um, and then it it leads up to this final scene. Uh, well, I guess I can say it's not really a spoiler, but it's um, history. <laughs> it's, it's, it's literal history. It's it's just a, a scene of Siegfried Sassoon, like seeing um, a soldier in a wheelchair and his legs have been amputated and he just starts to cry and he just starts to sob and sob. And that's the end of the movie with as well um, him reading a Wilfred Owen poem called Disabled, which is a really just sad poem about <clears throat> the just the feeling of loss in war and it's not necessarily death it's like the things that everybody loses yeah Um, the phantom kind of limbs that you lose yeah Yeah. (laughs) and I should say as well everybody I thought everyone in this cast was great uh Jeremy Irvine as Ivan Novello uh he's wearing a lot of coal around his eyes and he Mm -hmm. and this is the kind of to, to make it not sound overwhelmingly depressing there is the sort of middle bit where he's hanging out with the bright young things which is the sort of socialite aristocratic pack of 20s london and it's a lot of people just doing put downs and <laughs> terence davies is an excellent writer so they're quite yeah. funny and quite harsh and very well delivered by both jeremy irvine and also callum lynch who he's he's from bridgerton <laughs> he's from bridgerton everybody um he was fantastic as well oh okay well anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap it up I guess the only other thing is if people have seen other Terrence Davies movies, I feel like there's just, we've all just, there's this agreement in the air that every Terrence Davies movie is like autobiographical, even when it's not. So like even The Quiet Passion, which was about Emily Dickinson, (laughs) was sort of also about Terrence Davies. And I feel like this as well, Benediction, yeah, it's about Siegfried Sassoon, but really it's about Terrence Davies. uh, Because he's spoken in interviews about how like he's had a lifelong I don't know I guess this discomfort or like he's really struggled with his sexuality um because he is he is openly gay but he's talked about like he just he he hates it which is like really sad um but I think you can I think that's like part of the authentic like the rawness of this movie is that he clearly sees so much of himself in Siegfried Sassoon and it's it's not just like him telling a, another guy's story. It's like a union of two two people's stories and using this other person as a way to like refract his own soul. So it's it's great. Oh Terence Davies. Yeah. Oh he he he's flying the flags for aristocracy aristocratic melancholy. <laughs> he did Deep Blue Sea as well, didn't he? With yes. Rachel Weiss and um, okay, well, and the House of Mirth. Um, okay, so, um, Amon, I feel like you should conscientiously object if I'm giving a verdict. <laughs> Fair. Uh, but I suppose the question is, are you going to finish the movie? Yes. Okay, great. Because that's it. I think that's a fair point nowadays. Sometimes you sit down to watch a movie and like you're halfway in and you're like, I don't want to watch the rest of this. Yeah. I'm not going to go. I don't this like is... it. And I think yeah. if you don't have enough time, if you don't want to watch the rest of it, then there you go. Yeah. Now, I think in many respects, this, this film was more, whilst you know, I do think the pacing could have been better, this one was more of a mm. me problem than a film problem. Um, so, mm-hmm. so yeah, uh, especially yeah. on the back of I, Clarice's persuasive words, I will finish Can it. I ask a question? So you watched it on a link. Clarice, did you watch it on a link or did you watch it in a cinema? No, I watched it in a cinema. Oh, okay, I think that's also part of it. 
I think it does. Yeah, 100%. Well, I'm, do you know, at home is hard. It, it's, I, really, I honestly sometimes really struggle. I have to like put my phone in another room sometimes just so I just don't have like these <laughs> involuntary you. reflex of like grabbing for my phone to check. Uh, Clarice. I, I admire your self-discipline. <laughs> and then <laughs> I get up phone. and in 20 minutes later I get up. <laughs> Go get it. <laughs> I did not admire your self-discipline. <laughs> Clarice, uh, uh, screen, stream or skip? Screen. Great. Sure. Oh, amazing. Well, that is um, a screen and a continuation uh, for Benediction. Um, okay, so, oh, wow. Uh, on a lighter note, <laughs> it's, it's time for some uh, Rescue Rangers. It's Chip and Dale. A message on my landline. I don't like that. I know you're still mad about Rescue Rangers getting cancelled, but I just got a call from the police and I need your help. That I searched the perimeter. No clues. Why would there be? Six missing tunes in a month and not one clue. Oh, no! Chip! Dale, you look different. It's no secret I had the CGI surgery. What's been up with you? You know, this, that, other vague things to fill the space of this conversation. Cool. Chip and Dale, rescue rangers. Chip and Dale, when is danger? Danger, danger. High voltage. We're in touch. We're, yeah, sorry, I got in there. Remix. Fire at the disco. Okay. <laughs> 30 years after the Rescue Rangers series ended production, Chip works as an insurance <laughs> Chip works as an insurance salesman while Dale has had CGI surgery and works the convention circuit in hopes of reliving his glory days. CGI surgery. That's kind of so wild he, to me. He hmm. was 2D because Rescue Rangers was a 2D animation. Yeah, now okay. He's, now he's 3D CGI. But Chip's not 2D. But Chip is, no, Chip is 2D. 2D. Still. Oh, and okay. And Dale is now 3D. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. It, you know, Hollywood changes people. Uh, when their former <laughs> cast, oh, so it's like, so it's as if they're playing characters on the show. And yes. now that oh, oh, my God, that sounds hilarious. <laughs> That's really, well. Oh, well, we'll get to it, everyone. <laughs> when their former castmate, Monterey Jack, mysteriously disappears, Chip and Dale must reunite with the rest of the group, save their friend, and re- rebuild the two's friendship. So, directed by Akiva Schaefer and written by Crazy Ex-Girlfriends, Dan Gregor and Doug Mand. It stars John Mulaney and Andy Sandberg. Who's, which one's which? Who's, who's... John Mulaney is Chip and Andy Sandberg is Dale. Chip has the, the black nose and Dale has the red nose. Oh, there you go, guys. Uh, some... <laughs> well, I'm a big Chip and Dale person. So. She really is. is. It's not coming through. Uh, <laughs> she really is. Uh, Will Arnett, Eric Banner. Eric Banner, where you been, bitch? Uh, Keegan-Michael yeah. Key, Seth Rogen, J.K. Simmons and Kiki Lane. So, I mean, I suppose for starters, as someone who watched uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers at... Oh, no, wait a sec. I'm thinking of something else. Oh, I'm thinking of the Rescuers, <laughs> which are no, basically very similar, different. right? The Rescuers very, and then no, there's the... Re- very yeah, but different. <laughs> but like the rescue, the Rescuers were mice. These are chipmunks. <laughs> okay. Apologies. They're still in the rodent <laughs> yes. umbrella. Okay, but rescue rescuers and the rescuers down under, fucking sick movies. Yeah, I love them both. Very good. Um, okay, so let's talk about then. I, I suppose just like even that. I mean, it got me at the concept of like this kind of um, galaxy quest sort of uh, vibe. Is that was what it is? Where it's like the actors from a you know actors behind a series. So there's lots of funny things as they try and like be as heroic as the characters they play. 
Clarice. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's Galaxy Quest is a good comparison. It's I guess it's Galaxy Quest via Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It's very Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, where it's like, oh, imagine there's this world like our world, the the cartoons live side by side by the people. So you get um like there's like so many cameos in this film. So like when they go of to the conventions, he's signing <laughs> things, and like the booth next to him is Lumiere from Beauty and the Beast. Uh, and it's funny because like whenever they try to hand him cash, he just sets it on fire and he's like, oh no, I really needed that money. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like that who brings Roger Rabbit meets uh Ralph breaks the internet. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. I mean just because of that scene. <laughs> It's like the internet where it's like Disney. What is it? Disney. What's it? What's this? What's the place called? Disney High or something? The yeah, Disney dot whatever their website. But I will say the one thing that really impressed me about this movie is that it's not just Disney. I I don't want to spoil the cameras because some of them are oh, okay, really don't fucking spoil weird. Yeah. But it's not just Disney properties there's stuff from other studios and i spent a lot of this movie being like how do they get the legal rights to this yeah, like <laughs> who negotiated this it's well that is impressive i whoever negotiated the contracts to have the characters that appear in this movie appear i want to give that person a handshake because i'm very I, impressed what you've what's popped into my head is like you know that image of like you know it's like the crypts versus the bloods and they're, they're joined together <laughs> Holding hands, like with their, <laughs> with their bandanas, that we we came together for this across divides. They come Which, together for the sake of Chip and Dale. <laughs> I will say, I think that helps make this not because you know how Ralph breaks the internet kind of just felt like it was like very corporate synergy yeah. vibes. This helps alleviate. There's still a little bit of the corporate synergy vibes because it is a reboot of the '90s animation Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. Yeah, which, there's no way that. That's not going to be cynical on some level, but I think the fact that the care it feels like they chose the cameos because they were funny and not because it was helping advance some executives like grand scheme, um, like that exactly. that helped a lot. I would say to make this not feel icky or weird, just a bit. <laughs> so, um, Amon, tell me a bit about. I mean, John Mulaney know him very well from voice acting from Big Mouth. Um, you've got some key comedic players. Did you know Eric Banner? You probably know this, but he used to be a stand-up comedian as well. Um, I did not know that. Yeah, he used well. to be a star. You know why I know that? Because I remember when the movie Funny People came out and it was part of the thing. He, he was actually a stand-up comedian before he, in, in Australia before he broke into like serious acting. Um, but I remember that. So I suppose, how, how, did, it, how, did, how did the guys do? <laughs> That was me doing my Australian. <laughs> They've done good. They've done good. Uh, I have no idea where that was going. Um. <laughs> 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 well, I've realised, Amon, this is when you want to do a Cockney accent, you should do Australian. <laughs> because <laughs> that was better really? than your moon night. <laughs> 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 oh gosh! Yeah. Next time I'm doing cocky, I'm going to abide by the Hannibal, and I'll see how I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, seriously, <clears throat> serious place. Um, yeah, no, they did been really, really good. Uh, the dynamic between John Mulaney and Andy Samberg's characters are really, really fun. Um, you know, Mulaney is a little bit salty still. His character about Dale leaving him. Uh, in the early going of this film, 
and Dale uh, Andy Sandberg is just is <laughs> a doofus in a funny way. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed that dynamic, and the cast as a whole is really really good. Um, J.K. Simmons, I've sort of seen him and heard him in so many films that I can immediately recognize his voice, which is great. But there's a couple in there. Well, I was like, who is that? It sounds familiar, but I, you know... Well, Arnett know. surely is the most recognisable voice. <laughs> well, well Arnett was pretty recognisable. Seth Rogen, uh, well, I mean, he's not, he's not a voice, he's an actual character in this, but he's just so funny. He has one of the most... <laughs> one of the most recognisable laughs in all the cinema, and oh. he does it at one point in this film, but it's just hilarious. I was laughing at the laugh more than the actual joke. So is he um, live action? Oh, No. He's a motion, he plays like a... Motion captured. A motion, because they yeah, go to motion, a place yeah. called the Uncanny Valley, which is like right. the Polar uh, Express. Okay. Yeah. So he's a, a Polar Express era motion capture, like terrifying yeah. Yeah. person. But yeah, no, <laughs> I, I agree with everything Clarice was saying earlier. Like this is, for me, what Space Jam 2 should have been in many respects, in terms of its uses of the cameos and other sort of things to enhance the film. It's funny rather than just being lazily done. Mm. And I really appreciated that. I suppose then, you know, that you kind of get away with the fact that they were just playing, technically now, they were just playing characters. So actually they could be totally different people as the real people. Or is it that, so tell me how, because I'm trying to work out how it goes. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is like, how much is it basically them deciding we're going to just basically do our own version of these characters and we're just using their things and we're going to make kind of like a meta kind of joke about the situation. Because I think, like, obviously people who would watch Chippendale Rescue Rangers are people who watched it when they were kids. Like, this was like a very millennial show that, you know, is <laughs> that it's kind of trying... They're trying to uh, appease those people who have memories of it. So there's the nostalgia factor, but then also just, like, them being themselves, or being, you know, because I feel like they basically play versions of themselves anyway, uh, John Mulaney, mm-hmm. Andy Sandberg and stuff. Well, yeah, I I guess there's two things to it. The first thing I would say, it, this is 100% just for millennials. It's not for, I mean, kids can watch it, but it's not really, they're not really going to get it. For them, it's the, all the jokes are like, yeah, about stuff that millennials find funny. Like, I won't say, there's a joke about, like, the movie Cats. It's like, kids don't give a shit about the fact that Cats was weird. <laughs> um, there's a lot of jokes about how about how animation has progressed over the years. Which yeah. I funny, which like I'm not sure kids will get. Very meta and very, like, internet humour, I would say, as well. Um, which I enjoyed. The second part of it is, the thing with Chip and Dale is that they were already like there's Chip and Dale who were created in 1943 and then there's the Chip and Dale that were then in Rescue Rangers and they're slightly different characters mm-hmm. I mean the dynamic is always that Chip is the smart one and Dale is the little dummy yeah um but I think the fact that also Chip was all... very handsome and attractive and I might have had a little crush on him I mean they're both the same they just have just different like... noses no they look different like no but like Dale is definitely like the kind of I don't know the Seth Rogen too. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Andy like he... Samberg. I feel like I feel like it's well cares because Dale has always had Andy Samberg. Like, uh, so Jake Peralta from Brooklyn Nine Nine Energy. Like that's Dale. Yeah. Yeah. And then Chip is, um, Chip is who's like I feel like he Chip is more like a Chris Evans. Yeah, I guess because he was always in Rescue Rangers. He was always he was dressed as Indiana Jones. So that was yeah. His that's why. 
Yeah. It's the hat. It's the fedora. It's the hat. The hat and the jacket. It's yeah. the hat and the jacket. And that little ass. <laughs> Getting an interesting picture of Hannah's childhood. Here. Look, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but if you were not a millenn- if you're a millennial girl and you didn't have at least three crushes on animated uh, to animorphic <laughs> Disney characters, then yeah. I don't believe you. <laughs> like Simba, uh, Robin Hood, that fox was foxy. And then obviously Chip was really fit as well. For me, it was Princess Jasmine. Mm. That one was hot. I'm not gonna say yeah, like, very exoticized. Really I mean, embarrassing. So I thought, <laughs> Princess Jasmine, right? I swear to God, they did my girl dirty. <laughs> they really did. But you can, yeah, I'll save it for another time. Conversation for another time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was gonna say like the the umbrella of Chip and Dale is quite broad. So I think John Mulaney and Andy Samberg like vaguely fit the parameters of who Chip and Dale is so they don't it doesn't feel weird and it doesn't feel like those as a a big Chip and Dale fan it doesn't feel like I rec- still recognize those characters mm. I think my favorite Chip and Dale thing is I I I went to a Disney character breakfast at Disneyland and they came over and they knocked over the orange juice and then they got a little napkin and they were dabbing it with their little chipmunk hands and it was the <gasps> sweetest thing I've ever seen and that's why I love Chip and Dale because I have a very good memory of them being silly boys. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I remember watching it dig it on the Saturday morning. Good. So I suppose oh then uh, we gosh, mentioned uh, you're big about memories. Oh God, that. dig it! Dig it, dig it. <laughs> oh my God, I love dig it. Dig it. Recess. There's all oh, of them. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so much. Kim Possible. <laughs> the Prowl family. There's so much on there. We had it good back in the day. Oh, God, oh, yeah, it's so good. Saturday morning TV was sick. Mm. British Saturday morning TV was so sick in the 90s. Uh, <laughs> really okay, um, I suppose final thing, yeah, animation. Did we like it? Did it look good, even with the kind of, like, diversity of it? Yeah, I liked the I liked the variety of it. Like they mm-hmm. there's puppets, there's a a gum like a gumby character, the clay thing, claymation esque. Uh yeah, there's a whole joke where they do like a bunch of different animation styles and it's it's like anime and Rick and Morty and so yeah. it's really like I think it's it's loving towards animation, which is quite nice. And yeah. it's quite rare to see in a movie of this type mm. and 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 i suppose just to ask quickly because i'm just looking at reading out the people that we've listed on here who are in it kiki lane uh token woman or is there other female characters <laughs> there's gadget gadget okay so and does yeah. does she whose voice is her do we know she's the original voice from the tv show you know, oh, cool! The girl, the girl mouse. Oh, yeah, but I was because they've replaced the other two. So, um. no, she's the yeah, she's the original. And boy. does she and feature have... in it much? Yeah, she's like she's not the central character, but yeah. well, I would say like in terms of it is mostly Chip and Dale, and they like meet a ton of other characters. It's sort of like one of those films where they go location to location and they just meet like a million different characters. I suppose my question is, I don't know if you saw that episode of Disney, I don't know, Pixar Disney Behind the Scenes, and there's one about the woman who basically used a spreadsheet to work out who the lines for each characters are worked out that wow. women and it kind of totally changed the way they wrote mo- the movies because they realized mm. like even on the supporting characters I think it was cars they were like there's or any character in it she went through and decided if they're coded male or female 
And she worked out that like women were not getting any lines and they just changed so much of it by just changing characters. So my point is like, as this is a Disney animation, like, is it doing the parody that obviously it is established with other things? And it sounds like no. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's also like you're meeting a load of characters and all the characters are men. Yeah, like I don't, it's it's tricky because the original fault lies with Rescue Rangers because they had all male characters and Gadget, who was the one girl. <laughs> mm. So I, I feel like I feel like, you know, the main three characters in this are Chippendale and Kiki Lane's like human. She plays like like in Sonic the um James Marston. Yeah. Yes. She plays like that character in this movie. So it's really, it's like kind of about the three of them. And then everybody else like comes in for cameos and and, like one line jokes. So. Yeah. I wouldn't even say it's much about Kiki Lane's character. Like she's there to move the plot forward in some respects. And she's, you know, sweet enough for what the role entails. And she does what she needs to do. But the heart what heart there is and i do think there's just in just about enough in addition to everything to all the other elements um is very much with chip and dale and repairing their relationship and repairing that rift and that worked for me mm-hmm. yeah because i think it's one of those things and it's and again not to say like i feel like what are, you know you can love something but also recognize where you think okay we're writing this thing probably should have a a female character in here how do we put that character in and i'm getting the impression it was like okay let's you know what I mean? Not tokenistic gesture, but like just enough to make it not that sort of character. Yeah, I mean, they definitely didn't... They, there's a reason that that character is now played by a white guy, because it yeah. would be like, kind of, oh, <laughs> if it was. Yeah. Mm, interesting, interesting. Okay, well, on that note, uh, this is on Disney+, Plus, I assume, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, is it a stream or skip? I'm on. Sister stream. <laughs> Clarice? Stream. And then I think the original episodes of Rescue Rangers are on there as well. Mm, Great. Amazing. Sure. Okay, that's a. I think I'm going to try and watch it as well. It sounds like a 90 minute lol fest. It's just nice. So, yeah. It's nice. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So now it is time for our. Hot take, hot take. And actually, it is a hot take. It's hot. Because uh, we're talking about, I mean, this comes up every regularly six months or something, uh, about sex scenes in uh, fil- in films and TV shows. This latest one was inspired by um, a meme, uh, if you can find it online, but it was a, a kind of a guy holding a massive, <laughs> massive bottle of olive oil, pouring it on salad, and it was like, TV writers unnecessary sex scenes was it and then tv shows um and i suppose it comes are i suppose it's a gratuitous like gratuitous are there too many sex scenes that seem unnecessary to the story in film and tv um or is it just people um who still live with their parents and find it uncomfortable to watch them (laughs) (laughs) because i wonder sometimes i do think like do you who are you watching these sex scenes with? Because surely they shouldn't make you uncomfortable if you're like you're on your own. But there we go. So I suppose it is a question. 
Because I do think, you know, there, there is, it is a fair one to ask considering how often they feel completely unnecessary to the plot or I suppose the length they go. I mean, look at something like Blue is the Warmest Colour. Um, uh, that film was criticised for the kind of... I mean, it's like a three hours and like some... Even watching that, I'm like, oh God, this is... There's a bit too much here. Like, this feels very... I feel very, like, uncomfortable. Not uncomfortable, but just like... I don't need this much. <laughs> so I suppose how much um, uh, do you say, do, I suppose Clarice, like, view first, how much, what, I suppose what, what makes a good sex scene? What makes a, a, a sex scene that's relevant? Because obviously sometimes it can be good to move the plot forward. Sometimes it's just in to show a naked woman's body. And that sometimes, that sometimes you want to see the, the titties and the penis. <laughs> I don't know, like, my position on it is as long as the actors feel safe doing it, as long as the actors are comfortable um, and the way that it's shot is is good and everyone's safe and and also that the the sex being shown is not, like, the power dynamics of it are okay or make sense with the character. Well, there's not, like, you know... Fifty Shades of Grey was weird because it was like a film made by people who don't understand what BDSM looks like, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. As long as that's all cool, then put in as many sex scenes as you like. Like it's it's part of being alive and it's part of being a person. And like I think it's healthy for movies to be sexy and horny because, like, yeah, it's just like that's part of being. A human being for for a lot of people <laughs> it's having sex sometimes so i don't i don't see any issue with it good amon yeah i agree um you know any filmmaking technique can be used poorly um including sex scenes we've there are sex scenes which are meaningless there are sex scenes which go on for too long gratuitous all the rest of it but when they're done right it can really enhance the storytelling and, more importantly, enhance the relationship between the characters who are having the sex scene. And that is what can move storytelling forward if it's done the right way. When I think of some, you know, for some reason a a sex scene that has come to mind right now (laughs) involves Kiki Lane, the woman we just talked about. Maybe that's the reason. But I think of the sex scenes in something like If Bill Street Could Talk. Like... The, when it's done in that movie, it's meaningful to those characters. It's taking that relationship to the next level, and it's actually us seeing that has more of an impact than just hearing about it or just seeing the before and after of it, because it's done well in a movie like that. And I feel like when you have other movies of which do sex scenes well, it can be something that enhances the story as a whole, and that is all you'd want from a scene like that, because you don't want it to be gratuitous, you don't want it to be meaningless, you don't want to just have these characters together and not push anything forward and I think you know thankfully given in some respects how women have been able to speak up more for themselves um in recent times on sets I think of people like Margot Robbie um who is able to in the producer uh, in, in her producer role have more say in terms of how her body is used both on a um sex scene level and in other ways she would have more of a say in terms of whether or not to do it. But, and I think part of the reason why she would say not to do it in, a, in any given situation is because how is this advancing her character? How is this advancing her story? And those are the sorts of questions we should be asking when it comes to 
should there be sex scene in whatever film? Well, well, I think, I mean, obviously there should be sex scenes in film, but I think for us, I mean, that's kind of basic, but I think, you, you know, the question is, to what level should, like, because I think, I mean, I mentioned Abdelatif Kashish's War Blue is the Warmest Colour, um, mm-hmm. which has, like, it's like director's cut level. Like, I'd actually hate to see the director's cut version of this, but just, like, the, the length of time the objectification of the, the focus on it, like on this body and the way it seems to be in a, in a way, the ice, but obviously it's performance, but the kind of the expectation versus reality, the fantasy of this, because I think there's one thing to be said, movie sex is never, is real sex is never sexy as movie as in the movies. Like it's just actually really mundane. <laughs> I, I think it's, no one looks good. Everyone looks kind of ugly. I don't think, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think... And so, like, you have a film like that where actually afterwards, both of the women say, I felt really uncomfortable. It was bordering on, like, you know, I felt like in a really un- um, overpowered situation, like, he pushed this. It was actually traumatising. And so, you know, you mentioned Margot Robbie, but Margot Robbie's Margot Robbie. Like, a lot of times, like, as long as you can say a lot of the people are happy, but we don't live in a world where people, where people are allowed to speak up if they've got lower... So I'm, I suppose yeah. my tech sign is, sign is like, of course there's that bit, but like, how, like, can is there a way to show sex that feels that it's not? Because I, I suppose there's this line between like bordering on porn and and of, of course there was a time in the seventies where everyone thought shit, porno chic, we're all gonna be fucking, and there's people doing it in real life, like in you know *Nymphomaniac*. Uh, Lance von Trier loves a bit of unsimulated sex. Um, we've seen like Catherine Brilla, who also like famously did use unsimulated sex. So I suppose it, I suppose I want to get into like it. How, do, how what do you think makes a good sex scene, or like a kind of uh, without feeling like it's totally like not male gazy, but like very misogynist, like in a way I suppose objectifies bodies, especially female, because we all know we still live in an age where it's it's about women's bodies. <laughs> yeah, like I think I think the good thing about where we are today is that we're seeing sex scenes directed by like a a greater variety of people like that's the good thing about diversity in filmmaking is that we're now really expanding like what sex looks like and like for me I think you know we're talking about does it advance the character and the story I think sometimes a sex scene's just great to be sexy it's it's like I feel like it's okay for boobies to make you horny like that's an emotion like sadness and happiness and joy and um I love a good sexy sex scene like it's it's aesthetically pleasing as well mm. um but I think yeah it really I mean that's the thing bring up blue is the warmest color I think the reason that sex scene play so uncomfortably to me is not the length or or well, I guess it's also sort of how this the kind of sex that they're having on screen is so weird and unrealistic because the actors are really uncomfortable so I think that's the thing I think the reason that sex scene is so bad for us to watch is because I feel like you can sense that everyone that sat that day was not did not feel safe did not feel I think when you watch a film where like I saw uh good luck to Leo Grande recently which is a a film that has several sex scenes in it but like that was really built from a place of trust like they had like they were talking about Emma Thompson they they had a rehearsal where everybody got naked as this like sort of mutual 
uh, trust circle thing, <laughs> which is very actively. Um, but I think that's that's the way to do it. And like the sex scenes in that movie are sexy. Like they look great. And um, I think that that at the end of the day is is the thing. It's about what's happening behind the scenes. And if everyone is being uh, truthful and and everyone is building something on this mutual base of trust, then you're going to have a good, you're going to have a good sex scene. Yeah. 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 I'm just like, I just want, my biggest thing is to make sure that it's female pleasure is, is, is an equality there because I suppose my issue is where it feels, well, one, I feel like, again, obviously seeing women's body, I don't, I mean, look, (laughs) someone who has watched uh, an array of porn, like I have no, but I feel like sometimes it's like, I want to see mutual, I suppose, I mean, not depending on what the character is, obviously you can't generalise the situation. But, you know, I watched, like, The Bisexual recently, the TV series by Desiree Akarvin, and, you know, she, those sex scenes felt like, even they were, just, they were saying something. Like, there's a scene, like, there's a really, I just want to say, juxtaposition of, like, a, one couple in the same house having sex and the woman fanny farts, and it's really awkward. <laughs> And then the other couple have sex and she fanny farts and they laugh. And for me, that's a really good way of using a sex scene to show the, the show the relationship dynamics and like where they mm-hmm. are in there. And that's like really good. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. like that's why I think sex scene is good. And then showing mutual enjoyment, because also I think this is the sex education that some people need. And I think for too long, there has never been any kind of like foreplay or anything like that. It's just focused so much on like in, out, shake it all about and nothing else and it creates this like really ridiculous expectation of like like how are women supposed to know how to like pleasure themselves if they can't even see women pleasure themselves or being pleasured on screen so my big thing is like move out from missionary this has just reminded me hannah of watching pleasure the film sat next to you um, because that film goes places. But that's well, I love that film. Oh my mm. god, that film's so good! I can't wait to talk about. It. I've got some very sex positive films coming up, actually, isn't it? I'm very excited <laughs> about Crimes of the Future. That's gonna have. To oh my sex, god! Yeah. Although I am not happy with Vigo Mortensen's uh, com- comment about comparing Crash and uh, Titan. Uh, it felt like compare- some. Uh, yeah, I don't know if someone if like someone asked him a leading question because it's like well, I don't even know why you'd well just because there's car fucking but they're yeah. very different movies that's what we need more more car fucking scenes and on that note <laughs> thank you for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is the safest for you do subscribe rate and leave us a review if you love the podcast it really does make a difference shout out Suara thank you so much for sharing our podcast from last week we're yes, so glad that you've enjoyed you enjoyed it uh, and also if you want to listen to uh, the Middle Geeks podcast you should I was on there recently talking about Moon Knight if you're interested in more like Middle East and North African uh, diaspora conversations about film uh, but you can also listen to us continue listen to us please and tweet us at mm. fade black pod if you have something you'd love us to shout out next week and follow us i'm at hannah flint on twitter and at hannah and s flint on instagram i'm at clarice lou on twitter and at clarice lockery on instagram i'm at i'm on woman on twitter and instagram farewell film friends it's time to fade to black